Hello and welcome. You're listening to Outstanding in Their Field, an agricultural literacy discussion. This podcast is brought to you by New York Agriculture in the Classroom and the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation as we explore how agriculture meets some of our most basic needs of food, fiber, and fuel. We'll hear from educators who are creatively teaching and inspiring their students in food and agriculture. And we'll hear from industry experts showing the technology and science of modern agriculture and food production. Hello and welcome to Outstanding in Their Field. My name is Chrissy Rhodes and I will be your host today. In this episode, we will hear from an Iowa turkey farmer and an Iowa teacher who raises turkeys with his students. We will learn about Iowa's turkey industry, modern innovations, and how these birds can fit into education. With me now is Katie Hermanson, a turkey farmer from Central Iowa. Hi, Katie. Hi. How are you today? Good. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your farm, what you do? Sure. We have a farm in central Iowa. We're fifth generation, so it's been around for more than 100 years. And we have row crop, which means we have soybeans and corn on our farm. And then we also raise turkeys. So most of our corn and soybeans goes into the feed for our turkeys and the local hog and turkey industry. Our soybeans we also raise for seed beans, so those go into a different category of industry. Interesting. So you said it's a fifth generation farm. Has turkeys been the whole five generations of that, or is that a newer addition? No, yeah. So basically after World War II, they needed to diversify a little bit. There were more of the family that wanted to come back and farm, and we already had a dairy. And so to diversify, we went into turkeys, and that was on range and in Iowa weather over many years we have figured out that well turkeys don't survive the best sometimes in bad weather in Iowa and we have a lot of it so we've learned to move our turkeys inside to help them and protect them for biosecurity reasons so they don't get sick but also because of weather related issues that we have so that makes sense. it's changed over the years But it's still how we diversify and keep our farming business going when corn and soybeans are doing poorly. We have our turkeys that try to balance it out and vice versa. So So you mentioned that there's been lots of technology advancements over time. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so not only do we no longer raise bronze turkeys that are brown, the consumer choice is to have a turkey that does not show marks when you take the feathers out. So you can have a nice golden turkey on your table at Thanksgiving. They prefer to not see the feather marks or the little pin holes. And so now we raise a white turkey. And so that has been one change. So the genetics have changed over time. And with that, we can grow a more efficient bird who, you know, we have to feed differently than we would have the bronze type of traditional turkey. And now we can also, you know, do anything to make them healthier and happier in our barns inside. So it has ranged from genetic changes over time to what we feed them and you know the bedding all the way to using different types of lighting to figure out what is best for them and water and also technology in the computer system that runs all of that in our barns as well as ventilation so yeah technology is really important 
Yeah, so it keeps them safe. It gets them good quality air. They have plenty of food and water that's all monitored all the time. Yes, that's yes. pretty impressive and, stuff. Yeah, and we walk the barns. We have farm managers that also help on a daily basis with chores. And we can monitor what has been done and what needs to be done. And we can see, you know, the ventilation in a building is very important. We have about 10,000 birds in one building. So when you have that many, they have plenty of room, but we have to keep the air flowing no matter what time of year. And so our ventilation system is very important. And even in the middle of the summertime, when it's really hot, we blow nice, cool air and we have little misters and we can all track that as well as in the wintertime with their water looks like in their feed and the airspeed of wind going through the tunnel ventilation system in the building all from our iPad or our iPhone so it's really changed over time. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me how many turkeys do you have either at one time or throughout the year? How does that yeah. work? So we have basically three farms in our little farming area and it's all within 10 miles of our house. So our first one is a brooding farm. So all the baby turkeys come to us at one day old and they've all been sexed is what we call it so that we know that they're boy turkeys because we only want to raise toms on our farm for the meat for the turkey and not for eggs or or anything like that. So our turkeys come to us at one day old and they live in our first two barns. They come on one or two trucks and they stay there about hmm, six to eight weeks. And then they're kind of the teenage bird where they're kind of awkward and not very big, but they can live in a space that doesn't need to be as warm. And also they need their space now because they're bigger birds. So we move them into eight buildings approximately. And from there, there's about, depends on the size of our barns because we have different aged barns in different sizes. But they're anywhere from like 5,000 to 10,000 in a building, which Mm -hmm. seems like a lot to us. But they're also flocking animals. So we walk in and we show on a farm chat or a Skype that hey, we have all of these birds in here and it looks like they don't have enough room, but they just want to come over and see what you're doing. And so everybody has to come and see. (laughs) And so they all flock together and we can't really give a perspective of how much room they have, but they have a lot of room in their building. So, and they're happy. So if they weren't happy, they wouldn't grow and we wouldn't be able to sell them. So that's a good point with mm-hmm. animal welfare. You do have to pay attention to how they act because yes. if they're not acting right, they're not going to be profitable in the no. long run. Right. When we take them to market, when they're market age, they stay about 16 to 18 weeks at our farm, depending on what is going on in the market. And when they leave our farm, they leave on about 20 trucks. So that gives you a perspective of how large they get or how much room they need. And they are about 40 pounds. So they're, you know, the size of a kindergarten or a first grader. Mm -hmm. And they need space and they like to spread out, but they also like to be around their friends. So to switch gears a little bit, you're not just a farmer. You do other stuff too. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I wear many hats. I went to Minnesota to the University of St. Thomas and got a degree in social studies 
secondary education and I have a degree in history and a minor in geology. I came back and I married my college sweetheart and we live on the same road that I grew up on, just a mile and a half apart. So now we live on a farm, and so I think that gives me a good perspective of my parents grew up in Des Moines, I grew up in town, but now I'm a farmer and a wife and a mother of three. So I shop and I make food choices just like every other parent out there, and you want to buy the best thing for your family. And we have been involved with teaching Ag in the Classroom with Story County Farm Bureau. I'm going on like, I think this might be my sixth year of helping. Now I'm the county coordinator there, but in that hat, I've taught anywhere from like preschoolers all the way to adults at STEM Fest to lessons to, you know, farm chats with schools in Las Vegas and on the East Coast from turkeys to hogs to many different types of things. So it's been an exciting road. And with that, my husband and I are involved with the Iowa Turkey Federation. So we are constantly in contact and involved with the changes that are happening in the turkey industry or agriculture, but also learning about all the new things that are happening and the genetics and, you know, the different food choices that consumers are making that help our business to thrive so that we can change with what our consumers want. So that's one hat. And then another one is I've just was asked to be on Common Ground, which is a nonprofit group that it's all ag women and it's mostly farmers, but there's also women on there that are involved in the industry or just love agriculture somehow. So that's something new that I've become involved with. With your work with Egg in the Classroom, how do you see that tying into what you do as a farmer? How do you see your education and agriculture sides connecting? Yeah, so as being a social studies teacher, you think, well, you teach about history, and but you think about how our country was developed and why people came west and you know just beginning with that but also the international perspective of now talking about trade and transportation how do we move our product and how do our consumers get our product internationally and then also economically so my social studies background isn't just history it's economics and you know all different international ties so i think that really helps give the perspective of teaching agriculture to you know students and teachers and parents a different perspective because it's so cross-curricular that I think people don't realize how important agriculture is to especially in Iowa but to the world because we all eat and we all wear things and we all fill our cars with something so uh, that's really important. Yeah definitely and you mentioned we all eat and Mm -hmm. you do grocery shopping right so from the things that you farm that you raise what things come from that what things do you buy at the grocery store that might have come from your farm right we can go to several different stores within 45 miles of our house that are small to large that we can go and purchase our turkey at which is pretty awesome when you know that your turkey came from there but also restaurants and sandwich shops serve our meat too from Iowa so they're international businesses but it's really our local meat so that's really awesome you know being a shopper and walking into a store and seeing all the different labeling is really 
intimidating sometimes. And as a parent, you want to provide the best product to your child. Well, in the turkey industry, hey, we have like antibiotic free, which we currently are raising on our farm. And it's pretty new for our farm. Just that's the way our system has worked out so far. But it's antibiotic free. So that means that we treat our animals when they're sick. Do we want to have to treat them? No, we want to have the healthiest birds from the start. But if they do get sick, we do treat them. But when that's antibiotic free, then that means, you know, if they don't get sick, then we don't have to treat them. And then that can be called antibiotic free. When we have birds that are sick, and we tried to raise them as antibiotic free, but we had to use antibiotics to help them stay healthy. We then process those in a different time and they cannot be called antibiotic free. So on one hand, it's risky for the farmer to say, I want to raise this because we own our own birds. Our company that we raise for doesn't own them. And so it's a personal liability to do that. But in the end, those are worth more. So we want to be able to raise them all the way through. However, antibiotic free birds You have to just be more careful, and the people that work with you and interact on your farm have to understand the biosecurity things and how serious that can be for you. When we aren't raising antibiotic-free, we basically treat them the same. (laughs) Only if they get sick, we have to help them, and we have to take care of them and make sure they're healthy. And when they go to market, they're always tested and there's never antibiotics in their body. The withdrawal period after the antibiotics is always followed and the paperwork is always very clear and follows our flocks to the processing plant so it can all be traced. So that makes me feel good knowing that as a farmer we're doing that, but also it should help the consumer be more confident that you know the farmers do care and we are trying to help create a healthy product. And then you also mentioned biosecurity, which is basically just trying to keep them healthy all the time. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about your biosecurity practices on your farm? Yes. So after avian influenza a few years ago, poultry producers really started rethinking about how many and who comes on our farm. We try not to allow anyone who's been around another poultry farm, like another turkey farm, or they might have backyard chickens to even come on our farm. But we also disinfect different vehicles that come on our farm because they could bring different diseases and bacterias and insects and different things we don't want on our farm. Then secondly, when we walk into our barns, we want to have clean clothes. So my husband cannot go from the area that we have our large birds at to then our babies, our poults. The poults don't have the same immune systems as the large birds and So we have to be careful going from one building to another. A lot of times there's a lot of showering involved. When we host people, they wear head-to-toe biosecurity suits and put booties on over their shoes to make sure that's safe. And then also we have a dip tray, and it has just like a soap that you would wash your hands with before you went and ate lunch. It has a disinfectant in there, and it helps to clean anything, just even the 
the farmer, if they're going from one building to the next, they might still be clean, but to keep that building safe, that individual building, we still have the, the dip pan to make sure that their shoes are safe. And then also having a tight building so that things like mice don't get in and carry different diseases or different birds or things like that that might harm the animal so that we know if our birds get sick or if there's something happening, we know how to take care of it. So We mentioned a lot about diseases and biosecurity and technologies, but what other challenges is your industry solving? Do you see other things that are maybe coming that you're going to have to deal with or what does that look like? Yeah, you know, our industry has seen a change in consumer preference and like labeling or what the turkey may be eating. So a lot of times you'll see a label like vegetarian fed. Well, what that means in our industry is that instead of having an animal fat added to the feed, we use like a vegetable oil. They're just different ways of adding protein for the feed. So there's a lot of technology in developing different types of feed that has a better feed conversion too, so that you're creating a product for the turkey to eat that is healthier for them, but also it digests and adds to their body nutrients in a different way. So that's some of it. As far as like technology and changes, a lot of it has to do with adapting our buildings to become more efficient. So using different types of lighting, whether that's LEDs or a different shade of lighting or how much per day you do that. And with agriculture, we see change all the time, but there's always new research coming out on what they think is better for the animal and how they're happier and they'll grow better for you if they're happier. So... So that could be yeah. part of a sustainability piece too, exactly. right? Exactly. If you can be more efficient, you can right. grow your birds better, that'll use less resources. That's exactly right. And as a farmer, if we have less inputs or we make better choices on what those inputs are, then that helps us in the long run too and provide a better product for the consumer and maybe a lower price for the consumer too. So that can help our industry. And we've seen on our farm, we put in some solar panels And that helped us to reduce our energy usage. Has it made a huge difference yet? No, but we've just started with a small area and we'll probably expand that. But when we get different incentives from the government to do that, that kind of helps that technology to blossom and bloom and become more readily available. What is the best part of your job? On the ag in the classroom side, I think it's just so fun to be able to share what we do on our farm and the families around us that farm with us or farm in the same industry what we do because even though we live in Iowa most of us don't live on farms and so it's fun to say like well on the way to school did you notice that field or did you see that they're doing this and this is why they're doing that. So it connects the students and the teachers with their food and what they're wearing and directly connects them to what we're doing on our farm, but also what's in the grocery store when they go or they go and eat somewhere. What's your favorite part about living on a farm? I would say I love to see the changes in the seasons. Some seasons are hard, like fall is really hard for our family because daddy's not home a lot, but it's fun to bring the kids and for them to see 
what hard work and good work ethic looks like, but also to know that it's a family thing, that all of us are doing it and we all have our own part, and that with their different activities as they grow are helping our farm. Like we just had a clover kid who sent his steer to the locker and now, you know, we sit down at our table for a steak or a hamburger and we first we say thank you and we say thanks for all that you gave us and all the joys and all that's provided for us and this hard work that went into that. So they see the whole circle and I think that's really that's really cool. Okay, so flip side of that, what is the worst part about your job? When the busy season is busy, both Nick and I are both busy. <laughs> you know, in the fall, we talk about harvest in classrooms, but we're also sharing what we're doing on our farm. And so that's a really busy time because when we do like farm chats, I try to connect with the farmers. Well, this is their busy season and sometimes it rains and we have to find a good alternative or reschedule. And that sometimes is really hard, but that's also the joy of it because that's when people are thinking about agriculture is harvest or springtime when we talk about life cycles and things like that. So it's busy, but it's really rewarding. So. You just heard from Katie Hermanson, an agriculture in the classroom coordinator and commercial turkey farmer in central Iowa. Next, we'll hear from a different kind of turkey producer, John Sizer, who raises heritage breed turkeys with his elementary science and social studies classrooms. Stay tuned to hear more from John to learn about his students' poultry projects and greenhouse projects. My name is John Sizer. I'm a teacher at Northeast Hamilton Elementary School in Blairsburg, and I teach fourth through sixth grade science and social studies. And then I also do all of our ag education program and STEM work with kids. Been there for, this is my 30th year being part of the school. So I've been there quite a while. Yeah, so you were also one of our Excellence in Teaching About Agriculture award winners. Can you tell us about how you got into agriculture and what those programs look like? When you grow up in a town like Blairsburg, you're involved in agriculture your whole life. I mean, it's a very small town, and it's always been an interest of mine, but didn't have a lot of time when I was coaching and doing some other things. And it's something I really enjoyed gardening, and I have a small farm. And I just thought it was the way kids can learn better as far as science and a lot of hands-on type things. And that's how we started this whole program at the school, but it just goes back to growing up working on farms for years and just being involved in the agricultural community. And, and then also just making sure people understand the importance of agriculture, which I think is really lacking in our world today. So that's what's been driving me the last five or six years, especially. Yeah, that's my background and our farm and home continues to grow. So I'm kind of doing both ends of things. So it's exciting, but it's something I really enjoy doing. So you say that you think it's important that students are learning about agricultural systems. Are you seeing that they're coming in not knowing that or that they're curious? Very much so. I don't think as a whole, our population in the United States, understands agriculture very well and I think we prove that every time we turn on the TV and listen to people and we're trying to tie in some culinary things with them now too how to prepare the food not only grow their own food but how to prepare it and then also talk about how 
large agriculture needs to work hand in hand with the other because I think they just need to understand the importance of where our food comes from, but also the career links that can be in this. And that's something I really try to drive home. And most of the units we do are because of jobs within 20 miles of our school. I try to tie into things. And I believe that even fifth and sixth graders are thinking about maybe not exactly what they want to do, but they can definitely develop a love for a certain career. And then the kids really enjoy going out and seeing the things that we take them to and as well as what we do right in our school. The career tie is huge. Right. We have you know, one of the largest egg producing plants is only a few miles from our school. There's a huge wind farm now two miles from our school and just all these things going up around us that tie into what we're doing, sustainable energy and sustainable agriculture. It's a nice fit for us and what our kids like to do. Well, to back up a little bit, can you talk a little about your education? You said you've been teaching for 30 years. How did you get to where you are? And I uh, graduated from Buena Vista College. I actually graduated from Northeast Hamilton, so I've literally been there my whole life, but uh, <laughs> teaching officially for 30 years. And then went up to Buena Vista and came back. This is the only teaching job I've ever had. Actually got out of education for three or, four, or about four years, actually. And when I came back, it was kind of supposed to be on a short-term type thing. Somebody had resigned late, and I was still coaching there. But one of my things was if I come back, I definitely want to do things differently than what we had done before. And I knew I wanted to tie the agriculture in and definitely more hands-on type learning. So when I came back, that's how our program started. But again, when you've been in this community as long as I have, I knew the right people to talk to to get the things we needed. And we had the support, luckily, of, you know, I'd come up with these crazy ideas and they just kept letting us do them as long as I could tie them somehow to an educational standard or a career standard or something. I've been back now six years, I believe it is, so, <laughs> and don't have any plans on leaving now, so. Cool. Yes. So when you're trying to tie your agriculture into your education, how do you go about doing that? Do you have an idea for an agriculture topic you want to talk about? Do you see a standard and say, oh, I see a connection there? How does that process work for you? Usually for me, I'm a very ADD person. It's the way I operate. And I think that's why it was so important to me to teach the way I'm doing it now, because I think kids just get that a little better. A lot of times it's just something we see and we kind of trigger it. I try to think, okay, well, how can I tie this to a standard? And of course, that's where you guys have been a huge help since I've discovered you guys, your database with all the lessons that have the standard tie-ins. It makes my job so much easier now to print that off and show the superintendent, here's the standards we're going to cover, here's the... <laughs> it's really made my life so much easier. <laughs> I bet you we do 20 or 30 of your guys' lessons easily. You know, we may tweak them a little here and there, but at least the core of what we need to teach is right there, just finding the way to get it to matching the right grade level. And some of that, what we've been doing is having our fifth and sixth graders actually go down and teach first graders, kindergartners, some of the stuff. So that's been a big thing for us as well, having our older kids present back to the younger kids. And in a small school, you can make that work, but not uncommon for us to have a kindergarten class in our greenhouse with sixth graders reading them carrots are falling and then showing them how we're growing carrots in the greenhouse and even preparing them to eat and things like that. So it all works together. And then the things that I can't technically tie into, maybe a science standard, a lot of times will fall into STEM areas. I have kids just designing their own aquaponics systems and their own hydroponic systems, and we have solar panels. Cool. Can you so, tell us about those aquaponics and hydroponics? Yeah, mostly we've used just fish from ponds, and kids go fish and catch some fish and stuff. But we are going to actually be partnering up with the fish farm in Ellsworth and grow tilapia for them. We have some big tanks now. Last year, I believe it was, we grew tomato plants on top of those. 
just as an experiment. We've done lettuce and other things as well. We've never actually processed the fish yet from it, but it's something we're looking to get into as well. And we have a three-tier system right now where it's fish in one bottom tank. There's native Iowa turtles in the middle tank, and then the plants are growing in the third one. So the kids have to design. So it's really neat to watch, and they're very creative coming up with ideas. Uh, Farm Credit Service of America gave us a grant, and we purchased hydroponics. So we can grow, I believe it's almost 2,000 heads of lettuce a year. And we serve our cafeteria. We have outside groups, people that have sponsored us come in. The kids serve them salads and other things that we grow. And so those are probably our two biggest projects in the greenhouse right now. We do have traditional raised beds in there that we've built. We just experiment all the time with things of what we can grow and try to grow differently and what works in hydroponics and what doesn't work. And Mm -hmm. we just let the kids all test it out and try things. And So with the aquaponic system, they're working with the fish and they're seeing what animals need to grow and survive. So that's a science standard. Oh, yes. And then with the growing your plants, they're learning what plants need to survive and they're getting their standards there too. They're really getting the same things they would get from a textbook, but they're just doing it. Exactly. Yep. My wife is now the reading teacher for the same age kids. So she's been awesome as far as informational text type reading. Things we're trying to get to them as part of her reading class. So when they come to me, they've already maybe learned quite a bit about it. So we're kind of working those together as well, which is really nice. And then she does all the writing. So they're doing journals and just cool stuff like that, that they like to sit out in the greenhouse and write. It seems like they do better out there than they do maybe sitting in a classroom or whatever. So I understand that you have not just fish, you have lots of other animals in your classroom. Can you talk more about that? Yes. It started out my first year back with turkey eggs that I actually found on my farm. I raised heritage breed turkeys, and I knew in the fall that those turkeys were not going to probably hatch out if I left them out there because the coyotes would eat the hen. And so I brought them into the classroom as part of our embryo study, life cycle study. And it's the first time we'd hatched any in our classroom. And I think we hatched out like 13 bourbon red and royal palm turkeys. I was just going to do it for the showing them how they hatch in the incubator and all that. Well, the kids talked me into keeping them a little longer. So we narrowed it to, I believe it was four turkeys. We built a pen in our classroom. And (laughs) we had four groups of kids. And I made a deal that we're going to see whichever turkey weighed the most by Thanksgiving would be pardoned. Kind of a joke. But the kids took it very seriously. And they were sneaking food into their turkeys. And, but they actually had to weigh and measure their turkeys once a week, make graphs. So the math tie-ins on that was huge. I thought at the time, at the end of this project, would be Thanksgiving. They'd go home. Well, we're on our third or fourth generation of those same turkeys now. And they're not at the school right now just because we just switched to a brand. We just had a new chicken coop built as well. But, uh, yeah, so those kids actually raised those birds up. Some of them were part of it for two years, three years, and they were able to see those hens then produce eggs that hatched the next generation. So it's pretty cool. That led to livestock conservancy because everything we were raising was either on the threatened or watch list. That became a whole lesson. Production of turkeys in Iowa, I think we're eighth in the nation, and it just kept snowballing. And then we turned it into chickens as well, which was kind of the same deal. Started with hatching our eggs, and the kids then use iPads, and they candle them using their iPads, and they can, we have great videos of everything developing. Well, then we decided to keep them, and the kids run a business. So financial literacy came into play. They have to run it just as a business. They have to keep all the records of feed costs, 
how many dozen we're selling. And it was a real eye-opener that there's not much money in farming, which a lot of people will tell you that, but <laughs> especially on a small scale like that, you know, it took us forever just to break even. Unfortunately, I was the bank for the project, and so I was buying all the feed for a long time. And mm-hmm. But then the school last year committed, we just built a 16 by 20 brand new chicken coop, enclosed area, and we're just going to keep expanding on that. The community loves it. They come in and buy eggs from our kids. And it goes from just the science part to financial literacy to careers to food safety. Our nurse at our school also is one of the largest pampered chef distributors in the nation. And she started helping us. They made frittatas and, of course, scrambled eggs, deviled eggs. She started teaching them how to use those eggs to produce food, but also the food safety aspect of what you have to do to prepare them before you can bring them into your kitchen. And so they're all wearing hairnets and gloves. So everything we do seems to just keep snowballing into bigger projects, mm-hmm. which is exciting. It gives all these kids different opportunities to do different things with the project because not everybody likes just working in the chicken coop, mm-hmm. but they might like some other part of what we're doing or the business side of it. We have a marketing director every month. There's a new one. They have to go on our social media things and tell people that we have this many eggs ready or whatever's going on at the time. Then we have a monthly supervisor who has to check all their paperwork, make sure everybody's doing their jobs. And Very cool. So they're learning about egg production and meat production. Yep. And you talked about turkey production in the state of Iowa, and that can vary quite a bit from what we see out when we're driving. One of the, probably the most interesting things the kids bought into, too, was there's a big difference between a commercial turkey and a heritage breed turkey that you're raising. Like we did some studies. We actually compared them and grew some of both and how quickly they would grow, how many weeks it takes to get to be ready to be marketed, things like that. So that was a fun tie-in to that because most people don't understand there's many different kinds of turkeys or chickens or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that was an eye-opener for the kids. But uh, the jobs there were, were a lot easier because we weren't gathering turkey eggs every day like we were a chicken egg. Chicken eggs, it's quite a process because we have to go, like I said, twice a day. But the turkey project, I don't think the kids quite understood the scale of the farms that are just not even that far from where we're at. You know, the thousands and thousands of turkeys. They thought it was a lot of work to raise four or six turkeys. We talk a lot about different ways of raising them, pasture raised versus confinement raised. So there's so many different lessons you can go with that. And, uh, you know, I try to tell the kids their careers can vary anything from you're the person cleaning the buildings out to actually owning and starting your own business with that, with the turkeys or the chickens, or well, really about anything we're doing. Especially the differences in the commercially raised versus heritage breeds. And that's not just in turkeys, but really in every breed of livestock. Yep. So understanding those differences and all the genetics that goes into that, and there's lots of careers in genetics too. Right. The genetics is something new we started the last couple years, really trying to tie that in. And we've been actually hatching out sex-linked variety chickens so the kids can tell literally the moment it's hatched, if it's a hen or a rooster. Mm-hmm. We've worked a little bit with McMurray Hatchery out of Webster City, one of the largest hatcheries in the world, really, I think. But So that's just been another thing we've tied into, cross-breeding to see what we're going to come up with. We let them do some things like that. We're kind of getting to the point that I'm letting them choose certain breeds they want to raise because many of them show them at the fair. You know, those are the things they can look for, whatever trait they're looking for. If they're looking for eggs or meat or show or whatever they want the kids are starting to now get enough of an understanding they can pick and choose and things like that so making some really good decisions there yeah Yeah, most days we make pretty good decisions (laughs) (laughs) some some days not so much but yeah 
So it sounds like it takes a lot of work from you to really facilitate this kind of learning. Why do you decide to do that? I was a coach there forever, football coach, basketball. I've coached by everything there. So I'm used to putting in the extra time. It's something, though, that I'm very passionate about now, and it's something I enjoy. And I honestly, other than I've been on vacation a couple of times, I have been at the school literally every day of the year, summer, spring break, you know, unless we're on vacation. I'm there every day. So it is a lot of extra work. But when you see these kids, how much they enjoy it and what they're getting out of it. And I don't want to brag about it, but like our testing last year was sky high. We haven't used a textbook in six years for science, but yet we scored way above average in the state of Iowa on our science assessment tests. And I think a lot of it goes to teach kids how to think on their own a little bit more, let them solve problems on their own. I just think that makes a better, well-rounded student. And so when I watch how excited these kids are, the data is backing up our program. We want to be really unique, and I think we kind of are, especially in the elementary. But it's just something I take great pride in. I want our school to stand out in everything we do, and so I don't mind the extra time. And I really enjoy these types of projects anyway, so I don't mind the extra time, I guess. Good. So what changes in your classroom when you use food and agriculture to teach these systems? How do you see your kids react? I just think they enjoy it more instead of saying, do we have to do this? It's can we do this? And they're excited about everything we introduce to them, it seems like, because a couple things, they know they're going to be able to do things hands-on and it's stuff that they can relate to and they see how it can be used every day. They may not understand why we're learning about multiplying fractions, but they understand you know, everyone needs to eat. Journey 2050 has been huge for our kids. They've loved that program. I think we were in the top 10 in the whole world of that at our rankings for a while. Our parents are like, what is this you've got them on? Because they want to do it at home all the time, <laughs> learning how to farming all over the world. So they can relate to, you know, how this is going to affect them, how it can help other people. We do a sustainable agriculture STEM activity where they have to design We'll say if you live in a desert, you have no water, how would you grow food? So a lot of them are building hydroponics type things, vertical farming in the cities. You have to design different things. They may not ever go into this, but I'll tell you what, they're excited about it now and they can at least see, oh, this is why we're doing this. This is for food production. This is for a possible career. So, Going back a little bit to the Journey 2050, can you talk a little bit about how that program looks and what you like about it? I'm not as much of an expert on it as the kids are, but uh, you know, just the different farming techniques from around the world, the aspect of, you know, this is how many billion people are going to be on our planet this time, but we need to do things with less land. And I just love the challenge of that. Of course, it's a game type thing, so kids, all kids love those games, but they've done a great job of making it enjoyable and game-like, but so educational. I think that's a rare mix anymore, it seems like, with anything. And our kids uh, just thrive on that. And then the economics of it, I love that part of it. The kids would be like, oh, Brian went bankrupt on the farm. I'm like, well, that happens, you know, that's a... (laughs) Or he wasn't putting enough nutrients on the fields or... And it's funny how the things they come up with that you never would have expected kids this age to be talking about. That is cool. I did that program at a high school and one thing that surprised them was that their sustainability score in that game they have to balance economic, environmental, and social sustainability. And they were judging how well they were doing just based on how much money they had in the bank, but that didn't really mean that they were winning the game. So they have to really latch on to this idea of taking care of what's around them 
if they want to do well. <laughs> there are some that really got it. They knew they were accumulating the important things instead of the, just the financial part of it. So it's a neat thing. And I just had a class last year. They're now in middle school, but I've never seen people so obsessed with anything. And they're still playing it today. They're still on it. And <laughs> when they see me, they'll say, uh, yeah, how much sorghum they grew when they were doing something. And <laughs> It's, it's kind of funny, it's, it's, but it's a, it's a great program. Our kids just absolutely love it. So what is your favorite aspect of using agriculture in your classroom? What's your, your favorite bit about that? It's the technique of being allowed to teach the way I teach it. So from that part of it, I just love that because I don't think I could ever go back to, okay, open your book to chapter 20, we're doing this. And so the freedom and the way it lets me teach suits my style, I guess you'd say. So for me, that's the biggest thing of this whole program. It makes me excited about it. And of course, the kids are going to feed on that if I go in excited about it. And I just like the chance to experiment. Last year, we raised, I think we grew over 1,500 tomato plants. And I think we killed about 500 of them just you know, from experiments like, hey, put this one in the cold today, put this one with no light for, you know, just little things. But it's that every day you can do something different and experiment with a lot in ways that you just couldn't do any other way. So for me personally, it's the style I'm able to teach and the things we get to do every day, and then just how excited the kids are about it. It makes my job really easy. The motivation from the students, it just makes that so much easier. They don't want to miss anything that we do, so they're excited about it. And so the parents and the community is excited. I think last year alone, we had received over like $18,000 in donations without even asking. People love what we're doing, and we're working right now on an outdoor garden that we hope to make into a true community garden as well. You know, anything for me that I'm giving back to our community and our kids are excited about, those are the important things to me. I have a lot of favorite areas, I guess is the short answer, but those are the things that mean the most to me. So Good. So if you had some advice for other teachers who are listening, what would you want to tell them? Make sure your administration supports your crazy ideas. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think as long as you tie it in to a standard, you really can't go wrong because that's the whole objective. We may not all teach the same way, but we're all trying to get to the same place. Don't be afraid to just try things. We started the first couple of years. We built out of PVC and plastic a mini greenhouse that was in our classroom. Let the kids experiment and come up with ideas as well. Kind of give them the big picture. Here's our standard. How do you see us getting there? Because kids will come up with some pretty good ideas as well. Okay, last two questions. First, what is the worst part of your job? It is a lot of extra time. I don't mind that. It is what it is. Every weekend I'm stopping into water plants or making sure the animals and things like that. The first couple of years it was financial because I was pretty much funding everything. So there, there are some costs to it. Okay, flip side of that, what is the best part of your job? Again, just watching the excitement that they have and the excitement of our community now as we've grown this program into something that's very well known. It used to be football. I'd get asked every time I was out in the community about our football team or whatever. And now it's hey, what's going on in the greenhouse over there? We have people that'll call me if the grow lights don't come on at a certain time. They're watching because you can see it lights up our whole town, I swear. And our community's excited about it. And that's because the kids are going home excited. And we have grandparents coming in and you know all the time and randomly dropping off bags of potting soil. Well, we thought you could use this today, so we'll be... A, But they just want to come in and look and hang out. It's just the community, the whole area is kind of excited about it. So you're doing a whole lot of work, but it doesn't have to start out as a whole lot. So how did you start or how could you start and then kind of snowball it into bigger things? Absolutely. My first year back into teaching, there was a lot of life cycle type stuff. So I had this idea out of my garden 
I'm going to bring in a bunch of different produce. We're going to save the seeds out of it. I'm going to teach kids about how you save the seed. We'll plant that seed. They'll be able to see a full life cycle. That's how it all started. That little mini greenhouse that cost me $20 to build it from Menards. That was my only plan. Then we did jump the turkeys in there. So anyway, started out very small. And that first year, other than the turkeys got kind of added in, but we just really wanted to keep a couple little projects. And then over the years, it's grown into this because of well, the success of the first part of it, but also we had the space to do it. If the greenhouse would have never opened up with the high school leaving, I don't know where we'd be. We'd probably still be back just doing small scale. So sometimes it's that opportunity created itself, but I think you can get so much out of even just doing one or two projects a year, you know, just kind of just do some of these small things. It doesn't take much to grow some plants in your classroom, if you, especially if you have a window at all of some decent light. You don't even need the greenhouse. We just happen to do it because I like to build stuff, but you know, maybe the third grade, they're just going to do like one little project a year, and the kids love it. And that's all it has to be. It's just, we kind of went to the extreme with it on some things, I guess, because I never would have thought after that first year, we'd even be where we're at now. But sometimes the opportunity creates itself. I get that a lot. Like if you had to pick one thing, can you send me something that I could do in my classroom? And again, I'm not creating this. I'm saying, here, go to the Iowa Ag Literacy website. There's a great lesson there. Just do that. I think teachers need to hear that, that it doesn't have to be. This is unique, probably, I guess the best way to describe what we're doing but it doesn't mean it can't be successful on a small, much smaller scale. And that's the big thing, too. I hear a lot of, well, how do, you, how do you get the money for this? Well, as a football coach, I was used to going out and asking for donations or whatever, helping. And the first couple of years, I funded it. And then it, those same people that used to support all of our sports stuff kind of jumped on board. And they just, you know, donations. But again, it doesn't have to be huge. But like the $250 grant we get from you guys almost every year is huge. That was our that was a big part of our budget every year for the first couple of years, especially. We're we're still using our composters that we bought with it and everything. The resources are there, the lesson plans are there, especially if they just reach out to you guys on a lot of this stuff, you know, to start small and just run run it that way. enjoyed hearing from these two folks today. Katie and John are both great supporters of agricultural literacy. Be sure to follow our podcast on Instagram at Outstanding in Their Field Podcast, our website, and our Facebook page. For more information on the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation, visit www.iowaagliteracy.org. Remember to subscribe to Outstanding in Their Field on your favorite podcast streaming service. Visit the show notes to learn more about our guests today and follow their adventures on the farm and in the classroom. For now, thanks for listening and stay tuned for next time when we hear from more folks who are outstanding in their field.